It's go time. It was a fun weekend in the National Football League with all of their playoff games, and I saw on Twitter somebody posted, hey, the CFL broke out. Welcome, everyone, to Third Down Gamble, Don Charbon, along with Pat Mooney and Heath Graham. Glad you could be a part of it. Yes, uh, if you wanted to watch some good football, not all of it was great, but you can't complain when four games end on the final play with a score. Absolutely. And there's some fans clamoring for CFL-style overtime rules as well. Absolutely. Watching the games, I just thought they got better and better from the first to the fourth. The endings were more and more exciting. With that last one, does certainly bring into question their overtime rules. It has been a problem for the NFL for such a long time. Win the flip, get the score, walk off the field. It doesn't get any worse than that when you're a team that doesn't have an opportunity to respond. No other sport that I can think of in any way, shape, or form says you never get to touch the puck, you never get to touch the ball, you never have a chance at bat, whatever the case may be. You always have an opportunity in overtime. The NFL is the one that says get possession, walk it down, you're done. I mean, they have changed to make it, you have to get the the touchdown as opposed to the field goal. I used to hate getting the field goal because you hardly had to move the ball. Uh, having said that, when you watch a game like that game where it goes back and forth and you've got a quarterback battle and it's just amazing to watch and it ends like that, it's, it's disappointing. Absolutely agree. Three touchdowns and a field goal in the last three minutes of that game. And that's kind of a CFL style shootout in the end of the game. So to have both offenses firing on all cylinders like that and to not give Josh Allen the opportunity to get the ball in his hands in overtime is a travesty and it looks like there is a lot of talk now at this point it is just talk but will we see a different overtime rule in the in the NFL I I really hope we do it would be in their best interest I think to change it because the Patriots did it to the Chiefs a couple years ago where uh, Mahomes never got a chance and Brady took the ball down the field and ended the game right there a Super Bowl ended like that you just you can't do this. There's nothing in the rules that says only one team gets the chance other than when they go to overtime. And it, to me, it's, a, it's an absolute absurdity. The adage always is that defense wins championships. And the argument you hear from people is saying the defense can make a stop. Well, when you've got an offensive explosion like the last quarter, certainly in that game, uh, you like to have offenses get a chance. That's exciting. That's what brings fans to watch the game. My hope is they change it. And we only have to look back as far as the most recent Grey Cup to see an overtime rule in action as well. Yes. The Bombers got the ball first. They scored the go-ahead touchdown. And then they came up on a huge defensive play to end the game. And that was Hamilton having a shot to move the ball. And they were in the process of moving it. And Winnipeg made a great stop. And that was what ended the game. But both quarterbacks had the ball in their hand with a chance to make some overtime magic. Give credit where credit is due. Winnipeg's defense made a fantastic play, a tip drill to get the interception and win the game. Bottom line was, though, each team had a chance to decide their own fate. I love the CFL rules. I love the CFL. My hope is the NFL picks that up. They've followed a lot of the CFL rule ideas. They followed a lot of the CFL nuances over the years. You look at the NFL game as it is now compared to what it was 30 years ago, whereas three yards in a cloud of dust. Now they're throwing the ball 50 times a game. 
you saw that in the CFL. There is a lot of influence, and think of the Cincinnati head coach, Zach Taylor. He was a quarterback with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in 2007. CFL influences all over the place. One of the best quarterbacks that has ever graced the Canadian Football League fields, Michael Riley has decided to retire. It was not a shock that that decision came down. Notwithstanding, I feel a pang of sorrow that one of, and I truly believe this, one of the most accurate passers in the history of the game has decided to move on. And I would say one of the toughest quarterbacks to play this game as well. He has just been able to absorb hits, get back on his feet, get back in the play. And he is one of the all-time greats in the CFL, a big hole to fill for the BC Lions. We know Nathan Rourke is the likely starting quarterback coming into the 2022 season. He has shown some flashes of brilliance, but he is still a relatively young quarterback in this league. And we'll see if he can pick up the torch from Michael Riley and continue that string of successful BC Lions quarterbacks. Michael Riley, who started in British Columbia, went to Edmonton, led them to a Grey Cup. He did win a Grey Cup in 2011 with the Lions, but he never set foot on the field in that contest. But overall, a fantastic career, 168 games played. Michael Riley is a top-notch quarterback in the CFL and one that when we see someone like Michael Riley step away from the game, it is always tough to reconcile that as a fan. We're going to have other quarterbacks step up and be exciting, but someone of the caliber of Michael Riley and the career that he's had, you know when he was on the field, he could turn the game in a moment. He had the ability to make a long pass. He's cerebral. He understands the game. He can move the team. And it's a loss for the league when a quarterback like that decides to retire. But let's celebrate all the good things that he has done. Hey, 34,805 yards of passing in that career. He almost hit 6,000 a couple of times with the Edmonton football team. Best year was 2017 when he threw for 5,830 yards. Those are amazing stats in a, unfortunately, a too short of a career. From rumors that I've been hearing, it's something to do with fire protection is what he's interested in. I would love to see him uh, enjoy whatever career pursuit he has. 100%. We all can appreciate even though he was never on a team that we were necessarily the biggest fans of, we are fans of the CFL. And when you have a star player of the caliber of Michael Riley, we can all sit here and appreciate the talent, what he's done for the league, what he's done for his teams, a great veteran presence for younger guys coming into the league as well. So there's a lot to respect about Michael Riley and his CFL career. He was always the guy that when the chips were down and you needed somebody, you could look to him and say, can you lead us? And he'd step up and say, let's do it. Absolutely. And and a a class act as well. He'd always give a good interview. You knew that he was going to bring the nuances of the game to you as a fan when he talked about the game. Um, For me, it, it comes down to the character of the man. And we certainly saw the people in the league step up and, and recognize what Mike Riley did is if you're a fan of Twitter and you're watching all the people who spoke up about his career, about working with him, about playing with him, it's obvious the caliber of individual he is. Beyond that, there were signings in the Canadian Football League this past week, some significant. Kamar Jordan back with the Calgary Stampeders, for instance. 
That's huge. That's a big part of their offense, and he is a, the receiver that they can continue to build around. So it's good to see him back. It's going to be fun to watch him play. Now now that he's fallen into place, is Kadeem Carey the next big piece of that Calgary Stampeders puzzle? They have until February the 8th, I guess, to answer that question. But January 30th, other teams can begin the process of discussing with Kadeem Carey his desires and wants in a contract. I'd be a little bit surprised if John Huffnagel decides to not sign Carey, but there could be a money issue. It could be that Carey wants X and Huffnagel's offering X minus five. You never know in these negotiations how close or how far they are. Another one with the Calgary Stampeders that I was happy to see is R- Rene Paredes re-signed after the rough end to his 2021 campaign. I'm happy to see that Calgary is falling in behind him as their guy as far as the place kicking duties. So I'm really hoping for a strong bounce back season for him and to put the ghosts of that Western semifinal behind him. A bounce back season I don't think is required. It was only the one game, as you indicate, that he struggled. And even at that, he was missing just so barely each time. I I think he'll be fine. He was certainly distraught after that, but who wouldn't be? Good on Calgary to make sure he's signed before free agency comes open. Given the body of work that he has provided for Calgary, it's a no-brainer to bring him back. A couple of big signings in Montreal today. Dante Absher and Mario Alford, two receivers have re-signed. Still a big name, or a couple of big name receivers unsigned in Montreal with BJ Cunningham and Jake Wenicke. So it looks like they're starting to get that offense back on track here and and we'll see what happens with those other two that I mentioned and see if they start to explore some of their options throughout the league. And Deveris Daniels has re-upped with the uh, Toronto Argonauts, speaking of receivers, and Anak Moamba extended as well with Toronto. So the pieces are coming together for the Argonauts for 2022. I think the lockup of Canadian linebacker of Moamba's Caliber is an important move for the Argos as they move forward. They can build around a middle linebacker with his quality and strength. And, and the fact that he is a national a national linebacker is also uh, great for the ratio. When you look at the CFL free agent tracker, there's a lot of red that shows up when you look at Winnipeg's players and Red typically means two things, released or signed. And in Winnipeg's case, most of them have been signed. A couple have been released to pursue NFL opportunities. But for the most part, the big names in Winnipeg have come back. They have. And we mentioned Jonathan Congo signed with the Denver Broncos. He was one of those ones released. And Drew Dejarle from the offensive line is the other big name that's been released by Winnipeg. He has apparently worked out for about a dozen NFL teams and everything's indicating that he's going to sign with the New England Patriots. But other than that, the pieces are coming back. Just after we recorded last week, I think a day or two later, Zach Kolaris re-signed. We saw Adam Big Hill re-sign. Shane Gauthier re-signed. The list goes on and on and they have really been vocal about their connection and that atmosphere in Winnipeg that they want to be a part of. Some of them have talked about money that they could have got exploring some other options. But when you look at the playoff success that Winnipeg has had over the last two seasons, there's a lot of money that comes into winning in the playoffs. So if they're all buying in again, that's where you're going to win back what you're leaving on the table in free agency. 
the one piece that stands out for me with Winnipeg, I think they've done an outstanding job of bringing back many key pieces, but you don't see any wide receivers at this point. There seems to be a lot of skilled positions left out in Winnipeg at this point in time. I mentioned wide receivers, but you've also got running backs, the defensive backs. They've got some of those people still outstanding. So it's going to be interesting to see how they fill the gaps in the last few days here. It will be. Kyle Walters, speaking earlier this week, talked a lot about focusing on the offensive and defensive lines and building his team out from there. That's what they have done. It was kind of the template in rebuilding the Winnipeg Blue Bombers over the last several years. Now that they've got those standout linemen on both sides of the ball, keeping them in place and then going from there to find your receivers, your defensive backs, seems to be the the formula that Winnipeg is going with. They are talking to Harris and whether or not that comes to fruition or not is going to be a huge element in terms of what type of money is left. Because if Andrew Harris signs for big dollars, the Bombers don't have as much left over. I'm sure that Kyle Walters is looking and talking to Andrew and saying, look, could you take a pay cut? Because he haven't played a full season in the last... And that's something that I believe they're looking at. Do they talk to Andrew Harris a bit about his age and productivity and when you've got other Canadian running backs behind him in Brady Oliveira and Johnny Augustine, is this going to be a, a position? Can they sell him on mentoring and maybe not taking as many snaps as he has liked to do in the previous seasons and look at the future of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and, and where he fits in? I have mentioned before, based on the salary that he has been getting, I would be awfully tempted to go a different direction. But if you can get him on board in more of that mentor role, easing up some of the wear and tear on his body and bringing the next guys up, it might work out. Kyle Walter still has his work cut out to do in a few areas to figure out how the pieces will fit. Chris Jones has been added as well, signing Adarius Bowman, Emmanuel Arsenal, and Caleb Hawley. All three did not play last season. Interesting. I'm surprised by all of that. Now, I'm sure these are just tryouts, nothing more. There's no guarantees. Prototypical receiver body that he's going for. He's got the tall, lanky receivers. We know from watching what he did in Saskatchewan, that was often what he leaned towards. But you're right, to see someone who hasn't played and make not just one, but three signings, it's kind of interesting to say, what do they have right now? Is Chris Jones not really confident in the receiving core that they have at this point in time? Well, you've got Craig Ellingson, Darrell Walker. If they don't want them, they've got to start looking somewhere. There's Dekeel Williams, who the Rough Riders have not been able to re-sign. Does he have any thoughts about going back to Edmonton now? Him and Jones never cross paths. It appears, and we've talked about this a little bit in the past, that Chris Jones likes familiarity. He's, he's had players follow him from team to team, He's signing guys that are known entities in the league. Granted, they haven't played for a year or two, but he seems to be comfortable in in what they do. You're absolutely right, Don. It is, at this point, a trial basis. We don't know what's going to come to fruition come the season, similar to what we talked about with the Toronto Argonauts last season, that they signed everybody under the sun and there was no way they could fit everybody in. And you start to see some of those names that you're familiar with get dropped off as camps open as preseason games get underway uh, and that sort of thing so at this point I think he's got to 
grab as many guys as he can. We know Edmonton really struggled last season. You've got to start the rebuild somewhere. So it's almost a throw the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks at this point. So Heath, what you're saying is that he is Chris Jones is a marketing genius by bringing back well-known Canadian names to the team to maybe get some interest again in Edmonton. <laughs> that that could be the case as well. We know there was some disgruntled fans with the the on-field product as well as some of the behind-the-scenes things. So the more they can do to get some of those familiar names back and start marketing and building up their reputation again, it's time to do it. Well, speaking of marketing, the Elks made a big splash bringing in Victor Chu as their new president and CEO. I think that was a brilliant move. He's also from the city, so he's got ties to the area. That's the board's movement to say, look, we've got to reconnect and we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and do it. I think a few teams in the CFL are probably guilty of that, where they have to get back to the community. We saw that with the BC Lions and their new ownership this past season as well. And it's exciting to see. I'm happy to see personalities. The Toronto Argonauts brought Pinball Clemens back into a leadership role. If you want to talk about a personality, he's one of the biggest ones that the CFL has ever seen. The more of that, the better. We want the league to succeed. We want to see the game grow. And it's it's guys like this that they're bringing in and putting in place that are going to help make it happen. Interesting to see how fans respond because we need bums in the seat in this league. We've talked about that before, but he certainly said all the right things to get people excited. And I'm sure they had a little bit of an uptick in people buying season tickets based on what he's saying, the direction he's talking, even bringing back their um, you know, trainer is a possibility. Dwayne Mandrusiak is a is a huge return if they can pull that off because he is very popular, not only with the football team and the players, but he's also popular in the community and he's very well-liked and respected. That would be a no-brainer if Chu is going down that road that everyone would be on board with that. He spoke earlier, Heath, of building from the line out. The Stampeders have also done a lot of work. Ryan Sevier and Sean McEwen on the offensive line signed two-year deals. Zach Williams goes through for one more. And on the defensive line, Mike Rose and Derek Wigan signed through 2023. Calgary is, of the teams that had a huge laundry list of players available, them and Winnipeg seem to be the two that are... Had a lot of success in 2021, so they wanted to continue to build from on that. And some of the teams where you haven't seen a lot of re-signings has to make you wonder how happy the the team and the general manager are with those people and if they're just willing to let them all have a look around. There hasn't been a big free agent signing in Ottawa. There hasn't been a lot really in BC per se. That We know Nathan Rourke was a big signing for them, but there's a lot of receivers that are still out there. So it might be uh, time for these teams to cut their losses and let these guys have a look. Montreal. You mentioned Cunningham before. Wieneke, he's touchdown Jake. He, he scores a lot of points for you. Are they looking to move away from that? And if so, why? Are they sort of taking the chance that free agent interest isn't as great as what these players think it might be? And then they can get them at the rate that they're offering right now. It's it's one of those things. That's where that negotiation window, that seven days that they've got, is vitally important because it really gives you a sort of a sense of the room, as it were. Not every player who thinks that they're deserving of a raise is actually deserving of a raise or would find that the market is going to give them that raise. So in some cases, I think the GMs actually do strategically choose to say, okay, 
You may have cases like Micah Johnson in Saskatchewan where the GM intentionally leaves him out there. Other teams are filling their defensive lines up. And so he may find that while he feels he maybe is, should be paid as one of the top defensive linemen, he isn't able to command that in the open market. There may be strategic cases, and I use that as an example. I'm not saying that's the case with him, but it's certainly an example of what may happen. When we had Rob Vanstone on the show a couple of weeks ago, he talked a lot about each GM having their core list of eight to 10 must-haves. And certainly with teams like Calgary and Toronto and Winnipeg, you're seeing that come to fruition where obviously the guys that are resigning were on that list of must-haves and they're locking them down. You're right with Micah Johnson is a great example, Pat. He might be a guy that is on that must-have list for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, but maybe his asking price right now is a little bit high and they can't come to that deal before this free agency window opens up. Now let's be fair to the three teams that didn't make the playoffs, Ottawa, Edmonton, and British Columbia. How many of those players do you want back, given that you didn't make the playoffs with them in the first place? The question is always, are we going to rebuild a team through free agency or are we happy with the players that we have that we're able to build nurture the players along so that they become starters. We've seen that in organizations like Calgary, where when the the starters demand too much, sometimes we say goodbye and we bring the next person up because they're ready to step in. I'm wondering if BC and Ottawa are willing to ride out some of the mistakes that young players may make to develop that team. We have to remember that there's new general managers in some of these cities as well. So it's not just a matter of re-signing guys. It's that GM's vision for what this team looks like. And there are definitely pieces sitting there right now in Ottawa and Edmonton that are not to the liking of those new general managers. Another thing to think about is something that's been attributed to John Huffnagel. You may be the best player and you're playing for the Calgary Stampeders, but you're never going to be the highest paid player in the CFL and be playing for the Calgary Stampeders. You've got budgets, you've got salary caps, you've got to make them all fit. There are all kinds of considerations when it comes to money that don't necessarily mean that you're being overpaid as a player, but that there just isn't the money left if they want to sign three others. CFL players all wear a face mask for safety. With COVID-19 on our field, we also need to wear our masks to keep everyone safe. Do your part. Be a team player. We've taken a chance to look at rules in the CFL, and we've all come up with some ideas of what we would like to see from a different perspective, maybe some changes, maybe some fresh new ideas to make the game exciting. I'm going to start with one that deals with player acquisitions, free agent signings, and trade deadlines. There doesn't really seem to be an end date in the CFL as far as signing free agents. We've seen guys sign even into the playoffs. And in my opinion, that's not really great for the game. If somebody is released on week 16 by the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and it's looking like they're going to play the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in the playoffs, Winnipeg can actually go and sign that guy that late in the season and get some of that insider information. I believe that there should be some form of roster freeze after about week 12 or 13, you can have your practice roster fully stocked by that point in time, but you can't go out and sign free agents or sign players that are released from another team. What are your thoughts on that one, guys? Love it. I I like your idea of teams drop by another team, but 
if we're talking about players who come off of NFL tryouts or situations in that case, I, I don't mind teams having a look-see on those to determine whether or not they're going to bring them in next year, even if you're allowed to bring them to the practice roster only. That's fair. I don't mind that, but I don't think you should be allowed to make major roster moves in the final third of the season. If you haven't figured out who you are by then, too bad. And every other major sport, at least in North America, has a firm deadline. Baseball kind of has two. The NBA and the National Hockey League have drop-dead dates of when that trade deadline ends, when you can get players that are back on your roster, who qualifies to actually win the Stanley Cup based on when they join a team, that sort of thing. And, And I strongly believe the CFL is missing out on this one. We need some harsh firm numbers and deadlines on when these transactions can occur. I'm going to take this whole idea just a step further because I have often lamented the fact that the one-year contracts, we see players who are released right before they're due a bonus or they don't sign the long-term contract. And I think the CFL needs to do something to encourage players to stay with the team. To do that, I think the league has to make some changes. And I'm not sure exactly how you do that because in listening to some players talk, I understand that these bonuses are important to players. They want them because they're actually taxed on the bonuses at a different rate than they are on their pay. So many players do set up bonuses, but then the teams see the bonus coming and say, we're not willing to pay that bonus, particularly as it comes to year two or three and the bonuses potentially get larger. One of the things I think the league could take a look at doing is having an idea of a mandated bonus. Let's say that 10 to 25% of a player's pay in that year is paid out as a bonus on a certain date. I think that may help the players in terms of the taxes. But at the same point then, I think if CFL teams are going to go and cut someone right before they're due a bonus, that they might have to be on the hook for a piece of that bonus. So if they're paying 10 to 25%, let's say if they let them go in a window prior to when the bonuses are paid. So if league mandates the bonuses are going to be February 1st, and we say from December 20th, to February 1st, if you cut a player, you're going to be on the hook for their bonus, or at least a part of it. Even if they sign with a different team, you may have to pay that team 50% of the bonus to help pay. It's going to make teams hold on to those players or have a better chance of holding on to those players for the term of the contract that they've held. They can still cut them after training camp, but you paid them a bonus that's now going towards the salary cap. So at that point, you need to start to say, we're pretty confident in these players. They're going to be our guys, so we're willing to pay the bonus out. And if we do let them go, we know that we're going to be on the hook for a portion of that bonus. Two aspects to that. First, February 1st is right around free agency. Second thing, maybe make the penalty, it's a cap hit. The player doesn't really benefit from not getting the bonus, but the team suffers because whatever that bonus amount is, say $50,000, that's a cap hit. And they may not be so excited to do that too often. A prime example of where this would probably come into play is we look at Trevor Harris and his situation with the Montreal Alouettes in 2021. They brought him in as an emergency situation when Vernon Adams Jr. had a season-ending injury. They picked up the contract that he was due in Edmonton, and it included a six-figure bonus that was due to be paid out. We are smart enough minds to know that Vernon Adams Jr. was the guy for the future of the Montreal Alouettes, and that Trevor Harris was here as a stopgap measure. But he was cut to save that money, 
and it was a, a big part of his contract that he was due. So I like the idea of the cap hit that Don proposed. I think that's a, a great way for it to kind of come into play here. Trevor Harris, he asked to be released because he knew, truthfully, he probably knew he was going to be cut anyway, but he wanted to get ahead of the free agent market. How's that working out for him? <laughs> Not much right now. And it's a it's a bit of a gamble. I mean, free agency is always that for the players. Well, it does, in, in my opinion, that entices players to maybe sign a two-year deal at least. I'm going to bring my next proposal in then. As it stands currently, teams must start seven Canadians called nationals, seven nationals on their team, one of which must play on one side of the ball at a minimum, right? So you can have six offensive players and one defensive player. And we see many teams moving in that direction. I think that's why I'm looking at this one. Rob Vanstone, I think, first proposed this in the leader post to switch over to eight Canadian starters. I think that's great. The other part that he puts in is to mandate four on offense and four on defense. When we see most teams moving to more Canadian players on offense, we see defensive specialists coming in and we've seen the hit that the offenses can take because of that. And I think if you were to mandate eight players, first of all, I think it brings Canadian players into the league. Canadian fans want to go see someone they can relate to. That's someone I knew who I grew up with or someone my son might aspire to be a player like. More importantly, what it does is give us those four and four, which balances offense and defense. And I think you would see Canadian skilled players in different positions on defense and less specialization on defense, which might allow to more open game as well. I think that's a great idea. What we see a lot of now is loading up on Canadian offensive linemen, often a couple of Canadian receivers, a safety or possibly a defensive lineman. And that's where you get... Sometimes a linebacker. Yeah, and that's generally where you get your Canadian. So balancing it out, I I think, is a fantastic idea. It might mean more value in some of those defensive backs and linebackers and defensive linemen. We, We know they're out there. There's players of extraordinary caliber. You mentioned Enoch Mwamba. Doug Brown is a Hall of Fame Canadian defensive lineman. We can sit here and discuss a lot of names of guys on that defensive side of the ball that were born and raised in Canada and have made that impact. So it's it's a great idea to be able to celebrate them and to develop more of them. It's It's a good move in my mind. Getting onto the field... There are several things that I would love to see changed. Number one, I talked about this with Steve Daniel. I don't think I elocuted it properly. It's probably too ambiguous a question. I talked about pace of play. What I was trying to get at was I'd like to see more plays in a game. We're starting to see the number of plays in a game erode ever so slightly over the years. And I think the way to start to get around that is to introduce a 34-second clock. We have the technology. It would take the decision of when the time clock is started away from the officials, and it would be automatic. As soon as the player is down, that 34-second clock kicks in. If you watch NFL football, it's not that often that they actually get near the 40-second clock. They're usually snapping the ball with five or six seconds left. So I think 34 seconds is plenty in the Canadian Football League. This would not impact the last three minutes. It would not impact any time that the clock is out. In other words, the clock is stopped and won't be started until the next snap. 
This only impacts play where the clock would continue to run. And that would get rid of this, oh, the defense is making substitutions, we better not start the 22nd clock. Oh, wait a minute, there's the offense making substitutions, we better not start. No, it's 34, hard and fast. And then I think you'd see more actual plays in a game. I love the idea of seeing more plays in a game. That's why we go to a game. Uh, And I think, Don, if that speeds it up, it would be interesting to see. It would eliminate between the second and third down where they're third and two. And the coach is deciding, well, do I want to punt? Do I want to gamble? Do I want to punt? Do I want to gamble? And the official is just standing there waiting. Meanwhile, the clock just tick, 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 tick. You could have up to 45 seconds by the time that ball is put back into play. That is absurd. 34 seconds, that's plenty. If you can't figure it out in 34 seconds, maybe the Canadian Football League isn't for you. We have this idea that the 20-second clock makes for a way faster play and having recorded a lot of games this year to watch back in order to record this podcast one of the great things with a a pvr is the 30 second skip button and oftentimes especially on a passing play when that ball is down you can hit that 30 second skip and not miss the next snap so the illusion of the 20 second play clock is exactly that it's an illusion so uh, my only question to you don is on measurements for first down, on on short yardage plays and that sort of thing, do you propose that it does stop? How do we manage that part of it? Any part of the game that would normally require the officials to blow the play dead for uh, a timeout on the field. That would be measurements, injuries, scores, turnovers, TV timeouts, timeouts, Anything like that. Anything that would normally stop the clock, then you can go, you, you can wait around and, and then just wind in the 20 second clock. That's totally fine. But the 34 second clock is running plays, passing completions, uh, even going out of bounds. You, you, you don't need to stop the clock for those. You just 34 seconds and you're, you're back and in and going. And I think that would help get more actual positive play into the game. To further that, The other thing that I would like to see in terms of timing is not have the clock run at all during converts. We lose 20 seconds, 25 seconds on a convert. Why? That's ridiculous. That's a a one-point play. Why are we wasting 20 seconds of game time on a convert? That, to me, is an absurdity. The NFL doesn't do it. The clock is stopped for converts. Even if you want to not run the clock until the ball is snapped, fine. Kill two or three seconds. I'm good with that. But this absurdity that the clock runs 20, 25 seconds for a convert, give me a break. I'm in full agreement there. I would be perfectly fine with on the snap of the ball that it starts. I think that's a fair way to do it because then if you've got any kind of situation where a team's going for two, they fumble and the other team can return it. I believe that should be within the running of the game clock. But to have a a clock ticking down prior to a convert. You're right, Don, that's a ridiculous rule, and that one's got to go. Pat? My next one, I guess, has more to do with player safety on the field. I think the league's done a good job making players aware of headshots, particularly on defense. They've called the plays on the quarterback, and I think because of that, we've seen less of those types of hits, and player safety has increased. And Another area where, where we have a player safety rule is where an offensive player is not allowed to cut block a defensive player. 
We put that on so that the safety of the defensive player, who may not see that coming in most cases, protects them, protects their knees, legs, ankles. But the same thing can happen on offense. We often see a defensive back, for example, come at a receiver who's facing the ball. They come from behind and they cut out the legs. It, it's kind of hypocritical to have it on one side, it's not allowed, and yet you allow it on the other side when a player is fully defenseless in many cases. I think where a player is defenseless, you need to make that a penalty when someone is going knees or below. I would totally agree. You're getting back to the rugby elements of the football game. In rugby, it's hips to shoulders. That's your target zone. The only time you can go lower than that is when it's an arm tackle. But you cannot have a shoulder into a knee or into the ankle. It has to be a literal grabbing of, of the leg. I think that's taking us back to our roots. It's a positive move because the last thing we want to see are player careers getting shorter and shorter because of injuries. The CFL has done a lot. The turf, for instance, has vastly improved them over what it was 30 years ago. Headshots are slowly being taken out of the game. The horse collar tackle, pretty much gone. We've got to get rid of those knee shots. It's always so disheartening to see a guy that's gotten rolled up on and getting carted off the field. It probably has ended more careers than concussions have realistically because the amount of damage that can be done to an ankle or a knee when you've got these guys in that kind of motion and rolling up and hitting low is pretty severe. So anything, there's that fine line. We, we still want football to be a physical game. We don't want to take hitting out of the game. You do look at what professional football leagues have done, college football leagues have done to eliminate some of those dangerous hits. The, the hit on a defenseless receiver is another one that didn't used to be there. And you would see a guy, if the pass was a little bit high, get absolutely blown up by a defensive back or a linebacker. They've taken that out of the game as well. You can still lay a clean hit and pop that ball out, but you're not trying to end that guy's career. This is another one that I believe, if done right, has player safety at front of mind, and that's what we need. The challenge rule. I want to see the teams get two challenges. Not tied to timeouts. You just get them. If you're wrong, it's a 10-yard delay of game penalty. So that's a similar one to what the NHL has right now when you have a coach's challenge. It is a delay of game if you're incorrect. And it does not affect timeouts. So I think you're, you're drawing a little bit from, from that idea, which is, is great. Coaches will be hesitant to throw that challenge flag because it costs them a timeout, because they get so few of them in the CFL game as it is, that if it's a close enough play, you don't want to risk losing that challenge, especially early in the game. And there's a lot of plays that could be overturned if they had a successful way to challenge it a success-based system. Get the first and right, you get the second one. Throw that away. You get two, period. End of story. You may not need them, but if you do, you've got them and they're not timeout dependent. And maybe, just maybe, think about giving teams two timeouts per half. Not a bad thing. At the top of the show, we talked about Kansas City-Buffalo game and those two coaches kept their timeouts to the end of the game. Without the ability to keep those timeouts, if it was a challenge where they lost one, we may not have seen the outstanding finish that we saw. So I think in the CFL, we know how many outstanding finishes there are in those final minutes of the game. And when you have a timeout, you can strategically call it. Don, I like that idea. The most likely 
opportunity to use timeouts is say you're trailing by five points. You would use them right in front of the three-minute mark. You'd use them one, two, so that you'd save more time once you get into that three-minute zone because otherwise you'd lose all that running time going into it. And I think that's where I, I know Winnipeg used it once this past year. So did Hamilton, where they stopped the clock just in front of the three-minute mark, knowing that they get the next stop. Having two timeouts but not having challenges dependent on timeouts really makes a difference. And, and besides, the booth takes over in the final three minutes anyway. They could do it in the final three minutes of the first half as well. So would you change any dynamic as far as who is reviewing that challenge, whether it's the booth or the on-field officials, or would you leave it as is? Booth. I don't know what that guy, when we're watching an NFL game and he's looking at that little monitor, what he can see when the guy back in New York has probably got a 60-inch widescreen that he's staring at. No, it's it's got to be handled where the technology f- suits the best, and that's back in... Toronto. I like it. Now, when you're talking about reviews, my next rule to look at actually is one that is often reviewed, and that is the catch fumble rule. The way it stands now for it to be deemed a catch, a player must have full control of the ball and survive initial contact with the ground or with a defending player. There is no football move in that part of the rule, it's just basically defined as surviving that initial contact. My problem with the way the rule stands now is there have been several instances where a receiver has got control of the ball, got both feet on the ground, and then as they're turning to go upfield, get hit by a defender, the ball pops loose, but they call that an incomplete pass because they deem that he did not survive initial contact with the player. Now, my question is, once those two feet are on the ground, is that not surviving initial contact with the ground? Here's a thought, and this again goes back to technology. I believe the frame rate right now in television is 30 frames per second. Why not count 15 frames once the guy has caught the ball, got both feet on the ground? If he still has possession at the end of those 15 frames, it's a catch. I was thinking about that with pass interference, the 15-frame rule. If within 15 frames the contact is made, that's not pass interference. But outside the 15 frames, which is half a second, then it's probably pass interference because you would have impacted the player enough to make a difference. Count the frames, one, two, three, four, up to 15. Oh, he's still got the ball. It's not moving. When, When I was officiating, the rule was... Stop rotation, measure of control. That was it. Nothing more. I think the NFL really championed the change and the CFL kind of adopted a lot of their leads. They don't have that make the football move that have really mitigated against offense ultimately or against a turnover. It hasn't gone out of your possession while it's been thrown. I don't know. Heath, I like what you suggest there in the fact that if that's an end zone catch, what is the qualification for that catch to be made? Two feet in the bounds, and then it's ruled a catch. So in terms of that, I like it. Don, I'm not opposed to the 15-frame rule. The only thing I am opposed to is if it slows down the pace of the game. I think reviews already slow the pace of the game, and the game also has all of the timeouts that go on through the course of a game. And I think we need to continue to keep fans engaged by moving through as quickly as possible. So I don't know how long it would take a review. 
I'm in favor if it's a very short time to count 15 frames to see that it's got there. I'm assuming technology can do that fairly quick, but if it can't and they have to actually get up to 15 frames and, and count through them, I think that could potentially make reviews a bit it more. It would be hitting the pause button 15 times. <laughs> uh, we're probably looking at one, maybe two instances per game where this would actually come into play. Now, my one of my biggest problems is some officiating crews are so quick to blow that whistle and call an incomplete pass when they need to look at, or or even a down by contact on a running play, where they need to kind of let things play out. Because how many times have we seen a ball on the ground, the defending team has a chance to recover and there is nobody around and they could walk to the end zone, but it's whistled a dead play. And then when you look back at the review, it's a clear fumble or it's a clear catch, turn and fumble. So to get this rule to work well, the officials need to be willing to let things play out and put that whistle down for a couple of seconds. My last offering has to do with safety touches. I can't say I'm surprised. And my thought is, and I, I'm borrowing this from somebody on Twitter. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. But they went a little farther than I'm prepared to do. I want to see four points for a safety touch. Rationale? Quarterback on second down does everything in his power, including risking a concussion to get the ball across the goal line so they do not give up the safety. And on third down, the coach says, kicker, go back there and, and give up the two points. Almost 70% of the time as it stands, points are scored on the ensuing drive. So two becomes three, becomes five, becomes eight, becomes nine, becomes 10, whatever the number is. If it becomes a four-point score, won't change what happened on second down. Quarterback's still going to be fighting to get that ball out of the end zone, but it will change what happens on third down. And we're going to get rid of that kneeling crap and players are going to be allowed to play third down and punt the ball out. And then the defense can stand up and say, that's as far as it goes. We're not going to allow you to get anything more than a field goal attempt. So giving up a field goal would essentially be a win. You've, you've saved yourselves a point. I don't mind it when you look at it in the, in the, in the point area. I guess I also had a safety rule, and I'm just going to throw this one out there. When you concede a safety, it's often not because you're pinned deep. It's more so in the CFL, the ones I see, is often it's the wind in your face. Punting is an integral part of the game, and I'd like to see it kept in there. So if a team were to concede a safety, I'd like to see them move to the 35-yard line, and the punter still has to kick a ball from the 35 it's up in the air, it keeps it in the game, or if you're not going to have them punt, maybe the opposing team can then take it from the 55. You mentioned scoring, and scoring is a big part of the game. We want to see teams score. So if you're doing everything you can to encourage the team that may choose to give up a safety to still keep the punt in the game, which is often what's being taken out of the game, or to give up field position so the team is going to have a higher opportunity to score three points or five in addition, or I guess seven more in addition to the two, uh, I think that gets more scoring in the game. So if you were to say, if you're willing to give up a safety, take the ball, the team can take the ball at the 45 or opt to have you punt. Which one is it? Again, rather than kicking off from the 35, because we know kickers have huge legs. They can actually make up that 10 yards that they're losing on the kickoff. I don't think the punters would have the same. They're kicking from the 25 on a, on a, on a safety. Pardon me. 
Yeah, you're right. We'll move them back to the 20 then. For a kickoff from the 20, you're saying? Sure. You want to give up a, a safety, then you can kick off from the 20 as well. The reason I would take the kickoff out altogether is also the kickoff is one of those plays where we have players running down the field full force and, and there's potential for injury in some of those. It's an exciting play, yes, but more often than not, you're taking the punt out of the game. So keep the punt in the game. Punt, punt from the 20. Make that punter punt into the wind. Punt from, I'm thinking, punt from the 25 even. Make it a punt. So if you choose to do it, you still have to punt. Teams are more likely not to give up two, which is going to increase scoring. Or if they do have to punt, there's an increased chance that the ball is going to be in good field position for extra points to be added on top of it. If you're giving up points, you should be punished for doing so, not just the points. If you make it four, that's a huge punishment, and you're still giving up possession. If we go with yours and we give up two, then they've got to be kicking from the 20-yard line, and it could be a punt. It could, everybody's lined up across the line, and you punt it from there. How many coaches are going to opt for that? Not many. Make your kicker earn his keep. Snap the ball to him. Bob Cameron made a living out of kicking into the wind. You should be able to get it to the 50-yard line. Both teams generally face a wind unless conditions change throughout the course of the game. And if that's the case, then the choices you make on the coin toss are more important. We've discussed the deferring to the second half rule before, which I also hate. So <laughs> that, that takes that coin toss out of it a little bit as well. Four points or two and kick from the 20. I'm really weighing both of these rules and they both have some very interesting points. I don't know if I can get behind a safety being worth more than a field goal. That's my biggest issue with your proposal, Don, is a field goal is an offensive play. I know you're punishing the team giving up the, the safety, and that's why you want to have it at four points, but I just it doesn't sit well with me to see a safety be worth more than a field goal. Pat's idea is an interesting one as well. It, it's a, a real tough one. I agree. I hate to see the safety become such a big part of the game and anything we can do to make teams more hesitant to give up the freebie, the better. We And Don, you raised a great point about seeing a quarterback do everything in his power to get out of that end zone on second down, only to have your coach give up on you and decide we're just going to give up these points anyway. So way to run around and almost get killed for nothing. Here, we're going to give up two points. Mm -hmm. That's a valid point. I'm going to have to, to digest this one a little bit maybe come back at you with some fresh ideas as well. But I, I like the ideas of reducing the amount of safeties given up in a game. So kudos to both of you for some creative ideas on that. Now I'm going to throw one more rule change at you both. There was a lot of talk this past season about the offensive numbers being down, not as much scoring, not as much excitement. This one, and, and also about whether we should adopt four downs like the American football rules have and what to do about that so this one's a little bit outside the box what if each team has an opportunity to declare one possession to be a four down possession they can use it early in the game if they're the first team that gets the ball they can decide this is our four down drive get that opportunity to get down and get the score they can hang on to it till after the three minute warning you're down by four points you need a touchdown this is where we declare it's our four four down drive away you go, you still run the risk of a turnover. It could be you fumble that first snap, the other team gets the ball, and you've lost your four-down opportunity. But it might be a way to inject some dramatics into the game. That's interesting. That's really interesting. So it's pre 
pre-declared. You have to declare it on a specific... You, you, yeah, you can't have run a play and then call it. You have to take possession and, and have it declared. I mean, as a traditionalist, I still like three downs, but this has some merit. And what kind of got me thinking on this too is there is a defined set of rules in every sport. But you look at mixed doubles curling, there is an opportunity for each team to call what's called a power play where the rocks are set differently for one end in each game. IndyCar racing has implemented some boost systems to increase horsepower for short bursts of time to allow you easier passing of other race cars. So it's not something completely foreign in the world of sport, but it's a real wrinkle in football. I, I think this does do something, Heath, in terms of the people who are saying that the CFL should switch to four downs. It gives them at least a snippet of, hey, you may see it in the, in the game and, and a team may never choose to do that or not have to do that at any point in time either. But if it's that final drive and you need to score those points, you have more opportunity. It makes it tougher on defenses. It would increase scoring, I think. It, it would create some interesting data as well. You're going to get some quantitative numbers on, you know, 10 teams have called their four down play and this has led to X number of points scored. Here's a thought. What if not the final drive, but the the drive before the final drive where the team leading has the ball and they declare this is our four down and they get to run more clock out. It's a risk. Maybe with more timeouts, you can combat that a little bit. The other thing you could say, yeah, you move to three timeouts instead of two. So you have some chance of doing that at the end. It's not perfect, but it's an idea. We have to dive deeper into three downs versus four downs. Let's make it for the next episode. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean. Follow us on Twitter where our handle is at Third Down Gamble. Join us again next time. The Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching.